Hello there, this is Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 27, from the British Society of Dowsers. I'm Graham Gardner. Well, here in the UK, spring has very definitely sprung. We've had some extremely warm and sunny days lately, even though it's only April. So it's some compensation for the harsh winter at any rate. So the dowsing season's uh, getting into full swing, so just to get you in the mood for those outdoor dowsing expeditions, mapping out some underground feature or tracking an energy line, today's podcast features a talk from our 2010 conference about a long-distance alignment in the UK known as the Bellinus Line. More about that in just a moment, but first let me update you on the latest news from the BSD. Well, last time I gave you a little teaser about our forthcoming conference this year, but uh, full details have now been posted on the website, and it's a veritable smorgasbord of international dowsing knowledge. We have Susan Collins coming from Canada. She's a past president of the Canadian Society of Dowsers, and as I mentioned last time, Susan will be featuring in a podcast very soon. From the USA, we have the well-known spiritual dowser Joey Korn, we have health dowser and NLP practitioner Melinda Iverson in. From Cyprus, we have architect and international geomancer Christian Kiriakou. Uh, from Brazil, we have Kieran Schmidt, who will be talking about the informational science of dowsing. And from the UK, we welcome the return of Peter Knight, who you will remember from previous podcasts. Uh, Peter is coming to talk about his latest research on the West Kennet Long Barrow. And we also have author Paul Broadhurst, who will be talking about his work, The Secret Land. And as if that's not enough to get your interest, there will of course be our usual pick-and-choose selection of workshops from these speakers and others on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. There will be a field trip to West Kennet with Peter Knight, the BSD shop will be there in all its glory, and we're planning a retro-feel Saturday night party with a dowsing theme. So conference dates are from the 23rd to 25th of September at the Royal Agricultural College in Sirencester, and booking is now open. Remember, places are limited, so get your booking forms in now. You can find out more details on the main website. Now, uh, some events we have coming up in the next month or so. On the 7th of May, uh, Water and Site Dowsing Group Chairman Aaron Bray is uh, hosting a dowsing day in Glastonbury. So uh, it's a chance to get your rods out and explore the stunning location. Uh, courses coming up, we have uh, Understanding Geopsychic Stress, the third in the ever-popular Earth Energies series, is on the 7th and 8th of May in Stanton Drew, and I believe that course is now full. Uh, I'm tutoring that one, so looking forward to meeting you if you're going on that. Uh, I'm also tutoring the uh, Level 4 one, Understanding Power Centres and Features of Special Geomantic Significance, on the 11th 12th of June, and that's taking place at Somerton in Oxfordshire. Uh, back in May, there is a foundation course in Dorking on the 7th and 8th of May. That's also now fully booked. Uh, the next one coming up is the 16th and 17th of July, taking place in Leek Wooten in Warwickshire. Uh, the health dowsing course on the 18th and 19th of June in Northleach is also now fully booked. Courses are doing well this year. Uh, let's see, we have registered tutors have a couple of their own uh, publicised events coming up. Uh, Vicky Sweetlove is doing Earth Energies and Geopathic Stress, that's EE1, on the 14th and 15th of May in London. 
that same weekend, the 14th and 15th of May, there's a foundation course taking place in Glasgow that I'm running. And uh, Nick Riley is running a foundation course in Sanford, which is near Crediton in Devon. Uh, on the 27th through the 30th of May, Vicky Sweetlove is doing a special Earth Energies and Spirit of Place residential weekend in Limoges in France, which uh, sounds like it could be rather nice, so uh, slightly more relaxed there, travel out on the 27th and return on the 30th. You can find out more details on all these courses on the main website at britishdowsers.org, and of course you don't have to be a member to attend. Now, you're probably familiar with the Michael alignment, as doused by Hamish Miller with Paul Broadhurst. You may even have heard of the Apollo line across Europe that the pair also doused. However, have you heard of the Bellinus line? This is a north-south alignment running from the Isle of Wight on the south coast of England right up to Inverhope on the north coast of Scotland. I first heard about it uh, 20 years ago, shortly after I read Hamish's book The Sun and the Serpent, and so I was looking forward to reading about another long-distance energy line in the UK. Uh, but here we are in 2011, and I'm still waiting to read about it, uh, but at least I have now met the researcher, so that I know he has been quietly plotting the course of the line all this time, and working on the book in between his expeditions. We asked Gary Pilcliffe along to conference last year to tell us about his researches. Good evening, everyone. I feel as I've known you all my life. <laughs> but, uh, I know a few, of you, a few of you have heard of me and uh, the balance line, and a few haven't. So tonight I'll give you a little synopsis of this mystical trail from the Isle of Wight all the way up to the top of Scotland. It's a fascinating line that connects with cities both ancient and modern, and prehistoric centres and sacred hills that have been long forgotten. So hopefully I can enlighten you on some new sacred places, other than Avebury, Scratchy, and Stonehenge. How did I get into all this? Well, it started when I was very young, because I was always uh, in tune with the esoteric um, my grandmother was a psychic and my father's mother was a psychic and uh, so I, was, I had a lot of strange experiences as a child and this developed in my teenage years when I explored the Lake District near where I lived and the Lake District is, as you know is full of prehistoric stone circles and very um, strange sacred sites uh, which I'll talk about after and I felt at these places I was almost at one with the land, as if um, everything was um, more vivid and connected. And from these experiences I began to uh, sort of experiment with um, dowsing and also sensing. And one or two strange experiences um, I never caught on film, but the one experience I did catch on film, which I'll show you now, is a, a treat. Now, the place called... Um, does anybody know where this is, by the way? No? Who said that? Yeah. <laughs> I might have known, so, yeah. <laughs> Correct, yeah, it's Castlewood, uh, the Swingside Stone Circle, um, on sort of south-west Cumbria. And it was at this stone circle where I had a profound experience. A few of my friends are very sceptical about my ideas about earth energies, but I said to them, if you really want to experience a sacred site, you must spend a lot of time there. And so I said, why don't you come up with me on the summer solstice 
I think it was about 1989, 1990, and see what happens. So, uh, the crack of dawn, we arrived at Swinside, and we spent the whole day there, walking around the place, looking at all the alignments with the stones, and um, at sunset, um, you can see, we notice that the sun sets in a notch through these two great stones from the middle of the circle. And I thought this was a perfect sighting for the midsummer solstice. Uh, but I had a strange feeling that something else was going on. So I walked around in the vicinity and I noticed that a line had been scorched in the grass. And this line extended for what appeared to be miles into the distance. And so I said, come over here, look at this. And they looked and said, well, what is this? And so I took a photograph, and this strange lines appear. I took a photograph of this scorch mark that seemed to be coming out from the center of the circle. Now, it wasn't there before. Because we'd spent all day there, we'd noticed everything. And this line only appeared after the sun set on the summer solstice. And you can see from an infrared photograph this line and just barely scorched brown mark on this side. And you can see as I took a photograph from the other side of the circle, that white line. So I'd, I've never actually read anybody else experiencing this. But because Swinside is such a remote area and the stone circle hasn't been destroyed or manipulated or the stones taken away, it was rather intact, so it was like a, a functioning machine as such. And it seemed to be ejecting some energy from it as the sun was setting. And this energy actually scorched the grass. And there you see on the infrared photograph how clear that line is. And a friend of mine followed it for at least five miles until he gave up. So it went straight over the hills, and I thought, why, does it, why is it such a straight line? Is this part of the mystery of ley lines? You know, we know that certain churches and mounds and hills are all aligned. But here we had an instance of a straight line energy. But it only existed for a short time because it happened just at that moment when the sun was set. Boom. There was the power. The residue of that power was burnt into the grass. So I, I got to thinking that stone circles were accumulators of energy, and that when the sun sets, it, the magnetic field of the Earth somehow triggers the release of energy. And on this very rare occasion, we caught it on film. So that was one of the experiences that really got me into Earth energies, if you like. Many years later, when I'd um, picked up John Michelle's books in the, 70s, in the 80s, late 80s, uh, I was fascinated with the St. Michael alignment, which, of course, many of you know. So I decided to do, um, do a pilgrimage along this line from Carnaby at the beginning, as far as Avebury, because I couldn't get too much time off work, because I was living in the north. Along this pilgrimage, I had um, great insights, and I managed to Dows, the Michael and the Mary currents, and, and how you should feel the difference between them. A lot of people find it difficult to douse and know, know the difference between male and female currents. And it has to do with something within you, with being in touch with your masculine and feminine.
on this pilgrimage, like many authors, have found inspiration on Glastonbury Tour. And I had this uh, intuition that there had to be somehow a north-south equivalent to the east-west Michael line, because the Michael line connects almost the longest trajectory of land east-west. And I wondered if there was one travelling north-south, and it was a second-hand bookshop in Glastonbury when I just happened to pick out courtyard books, of course. Um, this Guy Ragland's Brigantia Mysteriography, which was a, the first page I opened it up was this trajectory through Britain he called the Bellinus Line. Yes, Guy Ragland is a, a, um, a kind of earth mystery researcher in the north of England, and he'd written articles for Northern Earth Mysteries back in the 70s, and he wrote a book in 76, I believe, and he discovered a web network of alignments through the north of England he calls the Cel Brigantia, it's the Celtic name of the region. And Brigantia was the most powerful Celtic realm before the Romans came and during the Roman occupation because the Brigantians actually did a deal with the Romans so that they will not interfere with their culture, religion and their lands. Uh, and so in return they kept their power and so a lot of their place names and sacred sites were not destroyed by the sort of Roman Catholic um, Pope uh, sort of ordered saints that were coming into the area. But he discovered there's a web network of alignments that run north, south, east, west. Uh, the north, south ones are 12 miles apart. The east, west ones were varied. But this is a grid that he looked at, not through dowsing, by the way, but actually through map work. But he decided that the one particular line stood out amongst all the others, and that was the bonus line, because it seemed to form the longest trajectory of land through Britain north-south and passes through the ancient city of Winchester, which he thought significant because it's linked with Bellinus the king. Um, whose father, Marmutius, supposedly built Winchester. So that was interesting, but he reckoned the Berlin Bellness Line was also a road that um, linked all these cities, because King Bellinus in the history of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey Monmouth was supposedly king who built a road from the south coast to the north coast of Scotland and linked many cities along the way. And this was around about 500 BC. So Guy Ragnar thought this must be, must be called the Bellinus Line because it sort of relates to an historical uh, theme. So, but, uh, so I decided to take it one step further because he never really researched it out of Lancashire, Cumbria. So I looked at the alignment further south, further north, looked at the places it passes through. And it impressed me in a way because it crosses major rivers at key fording places. It crosses the Thames at the famous Radcock Bridge, which was uh, um, one of the best crossing places in this area of the country. In fact, most people used to have to cross at the Thames at Radcock. The long, one of the longest rivers in the country, at the Trent, it crosses at the ancient um, family home of the uh, uh, Shrubbrae, which is the Earls of Lichfield. But formerly, it was actually the palace of the bishops of Lichfield. Um, the same with the Mersey of Didsbury, the ancient chapel there is one of the oldest in Lancashire. Um, Wally, which I discovered later was a significant site in the whole of Britain. Devil's Bridge, uh, Stanwix, the largest Roman fort in Britain across the Eden. 
um, the third and fourth is a cube crossing because the two fingers of Landnat come together. And um, if you fly over the fourth river, you can see these two fingers land. It's like the only crossing place in ancient times uh, at low tide. So it seems significant that this alignment passes over this particular ancient fording place because if it was further across or further this way, it would go too much through the estuaries or through Morecambe Bay. Or, um, so it seemed a very interesting alignment to me. It seemed to, to me the perfect uh, axis line, if you like. And what interested me is rather than having Boromump, Glastonbury Tor, Avebury, uh, all these sacred churches, St. Michael's Man, Bray St. Edmunds. We have Winchester, Birmingham, Manchester, Carlisle, and Dunfermline. So I thought, okay, this is like the layer of an onion. You know, this is the first thing you see, but as you peel back skins, there is something else beneath. For instance, Winchester was the ancient capital of England. Carlisle was the capital of the north in Roman times, right up to Norman. Dunfermline, Dunfermline was the capital of Scotland before Edinburgh. So there's a line of capitals already, and also Manchester and Birmingham were the greatest centres of trade and industry in the whole world, certainly in the Victorian times up until the 1950s, 60s. So it seems significant that there are centres of power on this line. And maybe this has something to do with, you know, the soul, the spine of Albion. Maybe man has manipulated it to create power and wealth as well as a, a spiritual sort of uh, understanding. The alignment of centres, yeah, that's another interesting aspect of the line. When I first uh, met John Michel um, in a pub in London, he spoke of the Bellinus line to me and he says, he said, I'm not sure about your line. He says, it didn't seem to go through anything significant, but he said, the word meon is interesting, he said, because you've got two places called meon on your line, and they both, meon the word means central, middle. So he said, you've got something there. And he sort of walked off, and that was the only time to really sort of have a chat with him. Wally as well, it passes right through Wally. Wally is just a, an insignificant town in the middle of Lancashire. But um, it's been determined by Ordnance Survey that it is the geographical centre of Great Britain, which fascinated me because um, it was another centre. But Neon Hill um, was, was thought to have been, in ancient times, the centre of England, okay, near Stratford. And the line starts its journey through Britain through the Neon Estuary, the Middle Estuary of Britain. And then I discovered the Dunsop Bridge, which is a fascinating and tiny little village in the Pennines. And it was only while we were sort of sat having a sandwich, I, I noticed the phone box had all these sort of rays around it, and it showed you that Dunsop Bridge was the centre of Britain, including these outer islands. So I thought that's interesting, the line actually passes right through Wally, the centre of Britain, and right through... Dunsop Bay to the centre of Britain's outer islands. It, was it a coincidence, I wondered? But, um, and then Shap was this great, in the middle, almost in the middle of the Bellinus line, is this serpent temple at Shap. Um, it, it was a significant prehistoric site, equal, not quite equal to, almost equal to Avebury, because there's only two serpent temples. The serpent temples are basically a large stone circle with two avenues going out, and uh, there's only Avebury and Shap. 
So I thought it was interesting that the Michael, at the centre of the Michael line, almost is Avebury, the Serpent Temple, almost the centre of the Bellinus line is another Serpent Temple. And it goes on to Blair Athol, which uh, is also now determined to be the geographical centre of Scotland. And Laird, which is the centre of the Highlands. So they seem to go through all these centres. And that got me more interested to research it a bit further. Because Meon Hill, at the foot of Meon Hill, is Ludstown, or Luddington. And Lud was supposed to have been an ancient British king who searched for the centre of England. And there he found two dragons fighting. And I was fascinated that this me on the middle hill has Lud's town at the foot of it. But of course in the stories we all think it's Oxford that's the centre of England. But Oxford's nowhere near the centre of England. <laughs> but Meon Hill is. So maybe there's some history gone awry there. Wally, when we first visited Wally, we didn't know what to expect, but in the churchyard there's a collection of the most ancient crosses in the country, dating probably from the 6th century onwards, and they're full of spirals and Neolithic um, sorry, sort of depictions, triangles, as you can see. And it, it seemed to mark this special sacred area around the church. Now Wally also has an abbey, it's, um, a Cistercian abbey, and this abbey is a ruined at the moment, but we thought this may mark the centre, but it was actually the church. And believe it or not, inside the church there's a great window of King Arthur in this tiny little town in Lancashire. And it, uh, so, and this linked in with a lot of other Arthur sites and lands, so we were getting quite excited that uh, somehow the hand of man has sort of, by coincidence, placed all these ingredients in this place for those who are initiated or understand to see it. Well, don't stop Bridge, I was saying before, there's the phone box showing you it's the centre of Britain with all its islands. But very close to Dunstock Bridge, um, the alignment actually goes right through the lower slopes of this hill called Middle Knoll. Now, Middle Knoll, because um, although Dunstock Bridge is the most central village, its exact point is just by Middle Knoll. And nobody can explain why it was ever called Middle Knoll. But um, it is certainly an interesting hill because at the foot of it uh, there used to be an ancient ash tree where all the kings uh, of the area used to meet in Saxon times and in Norman times. And I thought that was interesting that near the exact centre of Britain there's an ancient ash tree where people used to meet. You know, it's like the, the Nordic ash tree, the centre of the, uh, the world. There was so much rich symbolism throughout this journey. Now, Shap, the remaining stones you'll see there are quite spectacular because the geology of the area is granite, and it's a pink granite. It's very rare in this country. Um, it, when I studied the granite, it's very similar to Aswan granite in Egypt, the, the same granite as lining the king's chamber. And unfortunately, this circle here is only a part of an arc at the moment. But if you were stood in this lower picture here, looking at these great pink granite stones, and then turn to your right, you'll see a railway line going right through the middle of the circle. And up in the distance, there's a hill. You can't quite see there, but you can see it on the ground, called Skellor Hill. It's known as the Hill of the Skulls. And there used to be a great long barrel on top, but it was ploughed down to nothing. 
But interestingly, as we walk towards Stello Hill from this, um, what I call the head of the serpent, this circle at the bottom here is actually called Castle Hill. But as we walk towards Stello Hill, towards where the middle circle was, um, Stello Hill disappears and only reappears when you come back to the circle. So there was a similar sort of sightings um, going on uh, this whole complex to Avebury. One of the avenues um, stone still exists, and that's me stood next to it. Stone here is that sort of mound just to the right of me. But it was much higher at one time until it's ploughed out. What is, fa what is fascinating is, is that as we sort of first explored it, uh, we went to libraries, had a look through the records, um, discovered Stokely had been there and, and Camden, all the great antiquarians have visited Shap. Um, a lot of them had different stories to tell. But it seems like from pulling all the information together, there was a great circle at Shap, 400 feet across, and it was measured by a Victorian vicar who lived in the village. And he says at the centre of this was a great stone, huge stone, that was split up and there 15 gateposts were made out of it. But um, so unfortunately in the area, this is also rich in, in sort of uh, the ingredients that make up gunpowder. And so even in 1680 they had gunpowder and the local landowner, the Earls of Longsdale, uh, somehow for some reason decided to completely destroy this whole complex. So the great 400 foot circle, which by the way would have been the second largest stone circle in England, was destroyed completely. A railway line was later put through this circle, and Skeller Hill was, was uh, blown apart, and one or two of the avenue stones survived. So we've managed to piece together what it looked like in, in old times in our plans for the book, so you'll be able to have an idea. And it was very similar to Avebury, very similar indeed. But, uh, a line actually runs through that circle uh, where the railway line is on the east-west axis uh, from St. Bees Head to Whitby it's exactly east-west I was wondering about this, this alignment because it actually cuts Britain in half and Whitby is also a very sacred place for those who have explored that area and, and understood the history and so St. Bees Head uh, some authors have referred to St. Bees Head as an omphalus of Britain Wainwright himself um, chose a walk that runs from St. Bees Head through Shap, but then doesn't go to Whitby, goes further up the coast. But I wonder if somehow Wainwright himself is in tune with the, the sort of east-west east axis. There's so many layers to Shap, I could talk all night about it, but um, I'm just giving you a synopsis. Um, the Arthurian sites are significant, which is another layer that came out. Winchester was um, said by many authors to be the Camelot of King Arthur. So was Carlyle, was supposed to be nearly Camelot of King Arthur. Um, so there's, there's a two Camelots on the line. Cadimure on the hill at the top was in Scotland as a place renowned for as one of the key battles Arthur fought. Um, also, Arthur at church, which is on the alignment, um, is fascinating because in the church there's a plaque there that says that uh, King Arthur was buried here. But, um, you know, I've been to many churches where it says King Arthur's buried here. But it, it almost seems allegorical to us that these Arthurian sites have some other meaning.
and Arthur itself may be something stellar um, rather than or something earthy, something more dragon-like. If you like, uh, Cable's Wall in the middle um, is a site that I would have never come across if I hadn't followed this alignment. And Cable's Wall is this splendid sort of castle with a moat around it and Gothic towers. Um, it's now a place to host weddings, but. Um, when I knocked on the door, the owners let me in, gave me a bit of history, and I was shocked to learn that it was where Arthur first met Guinevere, according to their most ancient history. And of course, this all sort of linked in with the behaviour of the earth currents, which I'll lead on to. Uh, the Royal White Stones has the legend of sleeping nights. Uh, so does um, Alderley Edge. Arthur's supposed to sleep under Alderley Edge. The alignment passes straight through the edge itself. Um, Guy Raglan says that um, the alignment actually doesn't go through Alderley Edge, it goes through the town. But he never had Google Earth and <laughs> used the uh, more accurate lines because he was using one inch to a mile maps, putting them all together. But um, we've sort of made it completely accurate. And the more accurate it's become, the more astounding the sights are that it passes through. But um, using Winchester and Carlisle as a fix. Because Guy Raglan actually said that the, the alignment ends at a place just off Durness. I can't remember the name, but Hope, that was right. But uh, actually, when we went out to Hope and were dowsing around, there was no evidence of any energies or lines or currents in the Hope area. But they all seemed to converge upon Durness, which uh, we were fascinated with because that was a place where the bishops of Caithness had their summer palace and their held many of their rituals and services, so um, it seemed perfect, but um, it was only later when I used Google Earth from, uh, correcting the alignment that it goes through Durness, so it all seemed to fit nicely. So we all know about Hamish and Miller's discoveries of the Michael and Mary lines from Carnival all the way to um, Hopton on Sea. And passing through such sites as Glastonbury, Avebury, Stonehenge, and then he found a masculine and feminine current that followed the alignment in a kind of caduceus-like manner. And they never mentioned much about the alignment, you know, but I'm always fascinated because you take the alignment away, what do the currents follow? You know, you take uh, so uh, to me the, the alignment also is integral with the currents. Some people say, well, I can dance these straight lines, I can dance these alignments, you know, maybe there's something to that. But maybe it's more of a kind of line of energy that is only intermittent, you know, rather like the stone circle where it only ejects its energy in a straight line at certain times. And it's interesting, Michael Lines orientated to May Day. You know, maybe on the point where the sun rises on May Day, there's, there's a burst of energy that runs all the way up that alignment, and somehow the two currents are connected with it. It's just theory, but I think this, it's a trick, it's a trifold uh, sort of uh, research. It's, uh, the alignment and the energy currents are important together. So, with this in mind, you know, we decided to try and see if there was any energy currents following the Bellinus line. And I thought the first place to dowse and explore this energy has to be St. Catherine's Hill because it's right on the alignment. It has a reputation of being one of the most um, 
powerful places of earth energy in that area in Hampshire. Uh, it has a reputation also of being the hub of energies, uh, rather like a, a hub in the wheel. And um, it also is said to be in a, a place where court practices take place. So I, I just wondered that this must be a fascinating place to explore. And it's an Iron Age hill for dated from 500 BC, with a kind of raised central mound uh, within the trees at the top. But what's interesting about the site, there is actually a labyrinth there. Its age is uncertain, it may have been made by medieval monks, it may have been made over time, it may have been made by the schoolboys of Winchester College or William of Wycombe. We're still not sure. It's, uh, there's a, there was a remains of a, a chapel there to St. Catherine, which is interesting because Henry of Blois, who was Bishop of Winchester, brought the cult of St. Catherine into the country, so it's possible that he... Uh, had something to do with the labyrinth and the chapel there. Because the chapel, as you, you would look, as you leave the chapel, you actually almost enter the labyrinth. So there must be something that uh, they must have used the two, Christian and pagan, together um, during the time of, of William, uh, Henry of Blois, which is around about 1180, around the time of William II, uh, Henry II. Okay, so what we found was that um, the female current was coming up from the uh, west, from St. Cross Hospital, coming into the centre of the mound, and then joining and travelling along for a certain distance, and then splitting apart through the labyrinth. And the feminine current was on the left-hand side of the labyrinth, and the masculine current was on the right-hand side of the labyrinth. So you can sort of um, understand that if you, if you were... And this part here was where the two came together, at the sort of central tree in the middle. So this was an exciting discovery for us, and we, I went back there several times, got other dowsers involved, just to double check my findings, and I thought, well, what would happen if I just followed these lines and see what happened? So, you know, that was 1993, and I've been following them ever since. And to really tune into these ages, I hadn't really been following any other lines. I hadn't been going out dowsing the Michael or the Mary or any other energy lines or any water or anything. I'd just spent the past 15, 20 years just dowsing these currents um, and nothing else. Because I found that, um, that there are days when dowsing was very difficult. You know, sometimes whether it's our biorhythms or whether it was the phase of the moon, I'm not sure, but there's times when I felt that I couldn't do it, and times when I feel I could easily do it. So, you know, not even Hamish admitted he had bad days. So I had to work the line by focusing on where I want to explore it, and then think about or douse for which days I should douse it, and whether I should douse it on those days, and whether, and when I got to the place, whether I can douse today. Uh, not long ago, we went back up to Offington, where we're going tomorrow, to uh, do some more rechecking. And I'd driven for about two and a half hours to get there, and my dad's in says, I can't dance today. Says, no, please. What we found there was uh, bands of energy ranging um, in size. And the maximum um, width we found some of the lines was from here to this wall. Um, sometimes they shrink down to one or two feet. Depending on 
the site, the place, the geology. Um, all those things are integral with the line. Geology is key, I found. All the node points, all the special sites where these corals cross, are, were linked with some unusual geology. Which is interesting because the Michael line as well follows the Jurassic fault. And somehow the secret power within the landscape is to do with the geology itself. And if you look at geology map of Britain and see the wonderful colours in this country, you know that this country is special. And you wonder why this country is special. And it's because it has the most unusual geology in the world. Female co-doused colour is important as well because sometimes you know you can be following what you think might be the, the male cone but it's the female but we have to double check sometimes if you're having an off day check the colour, the width, the bands uh, checking and rechecking was very important the crossing points form some almost kind of a, a sort of um, like the Maltese cross because they, they shrink to a point to go into the ground and Hamish discovered these same points on the Michael Murray lines. And they are secret places of power. Somehow the, the energy has been drawn into the earth itself. And it's usually under some kind of um, either blind spring or a fault line. Something, or so even something that's been buried there because the hand of man has manipulated this line just as much as the Michael line. So we decided to start looking at um, where it begins its journey through Britain. And it begins at Sandown, the Isle of Wight, on the alignment, of course. Now, as you know, Sandown is one of those lovely old sort of Victorian seaside towns that a lot of people like to go and retire. The alignment passes uh, a little house called Nunwell, and Brading, an almost uh, a forgotten little town people pass through on the way to the ferry. The ruins of Core Abbey and a tiny little Binstead church. So at first it didn't seem significant. Layer one. Layer two. We discovered the geology of the island is fascinating because it mirrors the path of the moon across the ecliptic, which forms this flattened S shape. And I'd heard this information from an author called Brian Innes back in 1976, I believe. And a, a series of, of um, magazines called The Unexplained, some of you might remember them. And he talked about uh, the place names on the Isle of Wight being significant. So I noticed on the map that the nodes point is by the, what he would call the head of the serpent, and the nodes at the tail of the serpent at the needles. This is a ridge of green sand, which is on the hard crystalline sandstone. And he felt that this was uh, also known as firestone, by the way, and he felt that this ridge was significant. And in, in astrology, the, the nodes are where the moon crosses the ecliptic. Um, the north node is called the head of the dragon, and the south node is, is the tail of the dragon. Which is seemed to, this has seemed very fascinating, because at the head you've got the nodes point, tail you've got the nodes. And right along the hill that forms the backbone of, of the island is Moon's Hill. So I began to think that the Isle of Wight was regarded as very special by certainly the Druids who were supposed to have inhabited the islands before the Romans. And maybe they saw the island itself as one great temple that mirrored the path of the moon. Uh, but there was something else to it as well because it's this dragon serpent seemed to have 
a great power because we walked it and we noticed the energy in there was so powerful and also when researching the history and folklore of the island a lot of the mysterious events that have taken place on the Isle of Wight and believe you me there are many have taken place along this firestone ridge this, this back of the serpent but the alignment itself passes almost through the neck of the serpent um, but what fascinated most is that the two currents are connecting with this bend bridge down, this great Culver cliff, and it dominates, you know, the um, eastern side of the island because it's this great down that sort of it almost looks like a serpent's head from a distance. And from Google Earth, you can almost see the shape of its eye, bend bridge fort, and its snout. And those two holes at the very end there are called the nostrils, and that's the very nose of the serpent. So it's great, you know, it's symbolism, it's good fun, you know, is there anything to it? Well, we discovered that both currents connect with this place. And, um, and then through history, we discovered that Benbridge Dam was an island, a very sacred island to the Druids, where a Druid grove once existed. And this island, it didn't occur to me at the time, but it is perfectly shaped like a fetus. And that was an interesting symbology because the first place in the British mainland that the two currents connect with is a fetal shaped island. So that's just layer two. And there's other layers that I haven't got time to talk about, but it became fascinating because the head of the serpent forms the backbone of the fetus. The Isle of Wight is actually uh, a mirror. One side is mirror of the other. It's a fascinating place, like the duality island. There's good and evil goes on the Isle of Wight. Also, it's shaped like the coccyx. There's another clue there. The Isle of Wight also has a lot of pagan symbolism that still exists in the churches. On the female cult of Braden Church, we came across this upside-down pentagram in the church with a spiral you see at the side and at Binstead and the male coin Binstead the two, these are two churches by the way that are on the coins Binstead church is the only um, one of the greatest Shin gig carvings in the south of England and it's, a, it's supposed to be um, or she is supposed to be riding a beast or some say it's a bear which is more fascinating because bear is associated with north south axis Arthur is basically another word for a protector of the pole star, the, um, the, the system that, that um, Ursula Major, that circles around the pole star, Ursula Major, the bear, the great bear, protects the sacred point because the pole star never moves in the heavens, it stays still, but everything else revolves around it. So the ancient sort of pole star was probably the, the sort of either the gateway to the afterlife or the access to this life. Um, and so they saw that the great bear is the protector. And, um, and so a lot of our theory in science based um, around north-south alignment, so Broadhurst tells me, so it's interesting we found a lot of our theory and connections along this line. The first town in Britain that uh, the alignment and the currents connect with is Titchfield. Again, never heard of it. Came to the town, went into a bookshop and says, is there any link uh, with Titchfield and Winchester? Which we knew was significant. And they said, yeah, there was an ancient road that used to run from Winchester to Titchfield. And Titchfield was a port of the 
bishops uh, of Winchester from medieval times and also kings of, of England, uh, Saxon and Norman, used to use this private port at Titchfield. So I thought, oh, it's interesting, the first town, the village on the Belmus line, has got this, it was very, very important. And then we discovered there's a crossing, the first proper node, if you like, on the mainland Britain. And it was inside this Saxon church, and it's had a circular enclosure around the Saxon church, which reminded me of something more prehistoric. And next to it, the tombs of the great Southamptons, who one of them was the patron of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare himself is supposed to have visited Titchfield Abbey, which is also on the currents further up from Titchfield. So, you know, there's, there's a whole story of Titchfield which I'd love to tell you about, but I'm just giving you a snippet. There's, there's a whole lot of information there that will just blow your mind. So I'm leaping long way past some other sites I'd love to talk about, like Beacon Hill, where Lord Carnarvon's buried. <laughs> that's another site that's integral with the currents and many others to choose from, but Offington, because we're going out tomorrow, I'll spend a little bit of time here. Because um, it's known today as the oldest chalk-cut figure uh, in Europe, and it's supposed to be a white horse, although its back is very long, it has a very long tail, it has a head unlike a horse, it has a beak and horns, but of course, I mean, in 1500 BC, if this was carved then, as they say, or 1200 BC, there were no great horses in this country. There were only ponies. Um, historically, looking at history books, you'll find that the big horses came across um, mostly in Norman times, but certainly not before the Roman times. And so, this is not a depiction of a pony, which is the only other animal that was, that, that was like a horse in this country at the time. And some people say, yeah, okay, this is a goddess, a goddess of the Celts. But of course this precedes the Celts, so the Bronze Age. This is a Bronze Age figure. But the hill below this figure has always been known as Dragon Hill. And as you approach, or leave, actually, when you leave Dragon Hill, and step backwards, it appears as if this dragon is coming out of this hill. Now this hill has a lot of folklore and legend. Dragon Hill is supposed to be where Uther Pendragon, the father of King Arthur, was buried. And many key battles are supposed to be fought in this area. Uh, it's so rich in mythology and folklore, you could go on all day. But um, a lot of it, I believe, is, is um, allegorical. And that if you can work out what a lot of what these folklore is saying, you can have an insight into the mystery of what's going on energetically. So here from the eye of the dragon, or the horse if you like, we're looking down towards Dragon Hill. And so a lot of you probably know this site and been there many times, and you'll know that the white patch on top of the hill is where St. George is, is allegedly slayed the dragon. And its blood was spilt on the mound and nothing could grow there ever since. There's also a north-south axis here, and then from the um, dragged from Offington Castle through the, um, the hill right up to Farringdon Monument and from Farringdon Monument to the Wright Stones connecting three places that were also uh, integral with the currents of the Blue Bellinus Line Farringdon Monument, Wright Stones, Offington North South Lines, Polestar, Arthur it starts to get interesting but again I have to return to geology because I believe this place is significant because of its geology. 
Look at this arrangement here, the manger. It, it's nowhere else like it in this country. It's, uh, it's supposed to have been carved out when there's melting ice poured down the slopes and created these great grooves, if you like. You can see Offington Castle, the Iron Age hill fort at the top. No settlements have been found in that hill fort, but ritual offerings, urns, um, ashes, bones, no dwellings at all. So it's obviously a seasonal place of, um, if you like, connecting with the earth, the ancients. So this place is a gathering place, I believe. And what's interesting is also, this is, Offington is, is also the place where the Michael line crosses the Bellinus line. Well, to such, I'll show you that later. When I first arrived here, I started to douse and I found a crossing point inside the castle and a crossing point on top of Dragon Hill. So there's two crossing, two node points here where the male and female coins cross. This is a fascinating discovery at first, then it started to get rather strange after a while. When the slip is near the barrow, further along the ridgeway, but part of the Offington complex, and um, a lot of crop circles have also occurred around here, whether man has been messing around or whether it's just an emissions of energy, I'm not sure. But this is what I found when I saw Dow's accounts. The female coral, which I called Ellen, after the ancient goddess of Britain, who built um, roads between sacred places, and also Bellinus, who built roads through Britain. So Ellen and Bellinus seem to be the right sort of harmony, the right uh, for male and female. So Alfred's castle, where King Alfred is first of defeated the Danes in one of probably the greatest battles in Britain because it changed the whole history of this country and through Raymond Smithy and then turned sharply through two fields and those two fields have been the subject of crop circles for the past five years fascinatingly but, um, but I've never actually shown anyone these diagrams in that, in that time apart from um, well a couple of websites but a lot of them appeared before I actually put it out on the website. Now on the website, what would have happened is that when I first doused these coats, um, they came together in Offington Hillfort. But instead of crossing, they came together and went off at an angle. So the female coat actually went to Dragon Hill, and the male coat went off at an angle down the White Horse. But over the years, they've now switched back. This is something strange. I know, was it my dowsing? Have I gone wrong here? But now the female coin crosses the male and then crosses how it should do. So it was very confusing but, um, how this occurred. But apparently a lot of people have been focusing healing on the site. And maybe at one time the male coin was forced to be uh, going down the dragon instead of the female coin. As if man had been manipulating the energies again. But it seems like the earth, as Hamish said, the earth responds to people. So if you um, put out love and healing into these special places, the earth responds and corrects things that may have been, that may not be right. Or, or um, yeah, I think so. So the Mary current of the Michael line runs around this side of Offington. This is the Offington complex, and the Michael line runs along the south side. And further along here, they're very close together, but they splay out as if they're trying to avoid what's going on around Offington. And then come together further up. 
further up here. Um, Paul and Hamish were mystified that um, the Dragon Hill was not part of the Michael line, couldn't understand why they avoided the whole place. But, but somehow the Michael line seems to represent a spiritual axis, the east-west axis in ancient cultures was, did tend to be religious lines or spiritual lines. And north-south lines were physical lines, places of power, places of, uh, you know, like, like cities, you know, and population. We seem to match with um, the Bellinus line and the, and, the, and the Michael line we're all about. So it's interesting that they, they come together where they embrace each other, but they also avoid crossing all together. But let's move on. The Rollwright Stones. Uh, lots of people who visit there. I'm sure you went there last time, didn't you? It's, no, yeah. <clears throat> when I first doused the currents there, I was expecting, you know, as you do, there'd be a crossing in the circle. But instead, there was a crossing on uh, this mound, just near the Kingstone, which is the, said to be the Archsteward's Barrow, which fascinated me because I was like, hold on, wasn't the Archsteward also supposed to live on the Needles as well in the Isle of Wight, on the tail of the dragon? So, um, Again, it's an allegorical story, not true, but um, significant in some way because most of the folklore of the Rollwright Stones is centred around this long barrow where the two coins are crossed. Um, the sleeping warrior is supposed to uh, be underneath this barrow. Um, there's some fairies and goblins and all kinds of creatures live under this barrow. So it seemed to me that the sleeping warrior thing started to come into mind because there's a sleeping warrior thing at Uffington too, which I was fascinated with. So already um, the Rollwright Stones in Uffington were sort of both nodal places were linked with sleeping warriors. And then I realised that uh, this, this uh, barrow is on a fault line, a major fault line that runs that part of the country, just as uh, Uffington is, on, is the centre of the major fault called the Jurassic Fault. So I was getting some insight here into what's really going on behind these sites. Um, moving much further up, um, we come to the highest point in the Midlands, Bar Beacon. Now it's interesting here because I have a family connection. My mother was born in the shadow of this hill. And I used to spend a lot of my childhood here uh, with my mum at this very spot, which just happened to be a nodal point um, of two currents. And also a place where the Arch Steward of the Midlands lived. So we've got three Arch Steward sites along the alignment and the currents. And then further along, as we move into Cannock, Cannock Chase, we have the, um, the massive hill fort of Castle Rings. It's, it's probably the biggest hill fort in the interior of Britain. Uh, we have great hill forts at Maiden Castle, of course, and Egerton, and uh, a few of the others, Sisbury Ring. But um, this has five ramparts on two of its sides. So it's uh, Maiden Castle has only here three, you know, so this is an important site. And it's associated with King Arthur in some of his battles. So it had all the ingredients, uh, and it also happened to be a nodal point. Um, I'm moving on to a place that uh, you, you probably won't know about, and some of you will. Has anybody heard of a hill called the Cloud? Nobody? Well, the Cloud uh, is near Macclesfield, Congleton, Congleton, Macclesfield area, Cheshire. Um, you may know it's famous because it was the only place in, in England or in this country where you can see the sunset twice. So this spot here is near Leek, 
Church. Luke, you see on Buxton Luke, Peak District area. From Luke Church, uh, a unique event occurred, which was noted in prehistoric times, where the sun would come down at this angle, at the summer solstice, by the way, would set behind the hill and then reappear here. So it was known as the hill of the double setting sun. Now, before it was quarried, <laughs> this hill was much higher, and it had a great rock pile on top called Billy Bundle. And it must have looked like a Glastonbury tour in the time. In fact, some of the etchings actually reminded me of the tours in the distance. Again, I came across the history of this place because the alignment goes through, because the currents are, are messing around with all the, all the sacred sites around that hill, including um, on that, the actual point where the sun sets on that rock and the hill, there's all these spirals and, and carvings that's said to be dating from the Neolithic Bronze Age times. So the ancients were aware this was a special place. But right in the saddle of this hill are the Bridestones. The Bridestones was the longest long barrow in Great Britain. It was far larger than West Kennet long barrow. It had an inner courtyard with a hole that you could creep through from one side to another, from one chamber to another. But, you know, like all these northern sites, they were dynamited and used for road, road building. But even so, um, they reckon um, 20 tons of earth and rock was taken away from this barrow, and yet there's still quite a lot to be seen from it. Uh, in fact, one of the local halls has a massive rockery that was just used from this place. Um, it was a magnificent site, and it was dedicated you know, to the bride, or Bridget, if you like. Um, some people say it's called Bridestones because people married there in ancient times, but it had more to do with the goddess of Brigantia. Like, what I found fascinating was that um, when I followed the female coat from down from the cloud, and that's the top of the cloud here, there's no point on here, and one of the coats comes down this side of the hill to this church called Martin Church, and it's, it's on this great mound, and it's a black and white Tudor church. Uh, and the mound's significant. You think, well, oh, it uh, looks like a, some kind of um, prehistoric mound. And as you stand at the church, um, you have this view of the cloud. Well, I noticed when I looked at the map, its alignment was towards the, um, I think it was the winter solstice. Um, so I went back with the camera and I, I didn't, unfortunately it was cloudy, but some other person took a photograph before me and it's got the sun rising out of this notch here on the sacred day. And in that notch are the bridestones. It was like the, the sun was born out of, of this great uh, sanctuary of the goddess. It was just, uh, and that wasn't all, because I noticed that there were so many other places aligned. Yes, from Martin Church, there's Martin Church, that black and white Tudor building on the mound. You stand on top there, you see the winter solstice sunrise from the notch here at the Bridestones. If you then go down to another wonderful ancient church with a, a magnificent ancient view at Asbury, uh, there's a church of St. George there, and from there you can see the equinox rise from, from that, the Brad, Bridestones, from Mo Cop, this um, wonderful sort of uh, romantic folly on top of a hill. Um, this hill used to have a prehistoric barrow on top and a stone circle at the front. And from here you could view the sunrise and summer solstice from behind the bridestones in the same notch as well. 
And of course, from St. Edward's at Luke, where we showed you before, that was where the sun set twice. So this hill um, had, had, was like a great calendar clock for the ancient peoples. Um, and it reminded me of Glastonbury Tour in many ways. And as we reveal in the book, there was also a strange behaviour of the currents around this hill, as if there was something very, very important. And the stone itself is millstone grit. It's very high in uh, silica. So moving on all the way up to Old Carlisle, we also found a node point here in the cathedral. Also a current going through St. Cuthbert's church. And I think going into Carlisle Cathedral is a very it's a beautiful old building. It's got one of the, the most magnificent east windows you could ever imagine. And I took lots of photographs and then discreetly dialed with my handmade little rods the actual crossing point and then when everybody sort of disappeared we stood on the sacred point and, um, and before this I took lots of photographs but we stood on the sacred point brought in mind the blue snow and currents and recognised and honoured their presence there so I took a photograph there were herbs all over the, uh, the photograph um, and massive big ones as well as if the earth responded to our recognition that it, there was a place of power there within this cathedral so, um, and also this is underneath the cathedral the remains of Roman buildings that are said to be according to documents Arthur's Borough, Arthur's Hall and this document proves that a building existed here with the name of Arthur from 1150, which makes it uh, have, there's more evidence here of King Arthur than there is in Glastonbury or, or Wales because of these documents. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, then, you know, maybe this Arthur has something to do with a celestial Arthur, and Arthur was a god that they worship, because Arthur seemed to be all over the place, doesn't he? And speaking of Arthur, um, the last place the alignment goes through in England is a place called Longtown. And um, Longtown is a church at Arthur, and the alignment passes through here, and um, one of the currents. And inside is a plaque said, you know, this is where King Arthur was buried. And if you look at the place, it's, it's a fascinating church. It doesn't look like the sort of place you'd imagine Arthur buried. But its, it's surroundings is fascinating because it stands on a high mound and as you look down it reminded me of the Glastonbury seeing all the flat levels around and this is a high point and you can imagine when the sea levels were higher that this place is almost like an island and some people do refer to it as this the kind of the borders Avalon so and it's fascinating that we only, again we didn't, we didn't know about this place if we hadn't been following the Bellinus line in its currents through Scotland, Paddymore Hill, the Great Battle. But um, Fort Tevia fascinated me because, again, it was one of the places we had to drive through because of some the alignments. And then we discovered that before the um, Scots came into Scotland and named it Scotland, the Picts ruled over the kingdom. And their greatest palace or centre of kingship was at Fort Tevyet. And the currents were crossing um, just outside there. Um, and the place said to be the most ancient palace. So, um, and Pit Lockery, again, is one of the central towns just outside. Um, the currents seem to avoid Pit Lockery and go to Moulins, which, when we arrived in Moulins, there was um, a, a chapel there that would be built by one of the early. 
various saints in, in, the king, in, in Scotland. Uh, and then we started to follow a trail of Kuldees, um, certain Kuldee monks. We followed the trail of these Kuldee monks as we were following the um, alert currents. And also Merlin. The Merlin sites in Scotland were all integral with this line. So we've gone from this kind of King Arthur in England to following Merlin trails through Scotland in the Tweed Valley. Culloden uh, was one of many key battle sites upon this alignment. That, uh, we only really tuned into battle sites after really looking into the history of Culloden and seeing that the battle site was specially chosen. It wasn't a battle site that came back by accident. It was deliberately planned to have this battle there, and probably the worst place the Highlanders could ever have a battle because uh, it was a completely wrong terrain and there's a lot of skullduggery that was going on. And we went right into all that story because the balance line is not just a story about the currents, it's also about the sort of story of Albion. And because today even the Battle of Culloden still affects people from miles and miles around in that area. And uh, it's still, a, it's because it was first on this, this key alignment, this key power place. And it had a maximum effect upon the population. And then we go on from Laird and up to Durness at the top, which uh, they found at the palace, the kings, but also the peninsula of Durness is shaped like a dragon. So at the end of it all, we found all this high symbolism and everything, and we all sort of weaved it all together uh, into a book which we're hoping to publish uh, early next year now. Um, because with the stage where we need to get pictures, things and everything together and recheck places. But um, so I'm hoping that um, um, I'll have a book on sale early next year. And thank you for listening and I'll, I hope I'll get to speak to a lot of you later on. Thank you very much. My thanks to Gary for that fascinating talk on the Bellinus line, and uh, apologies for the slightly poor sound quality of that. Uh, I take the sound feed off the Hall's uh, radio microphone system, and it wasn't at its best that day, shall we say. You can find out more about Gary's work on his website at bellinusline.com. As usual, I'll put a link to that on the main podcast page. And I've just heard from Gary that the book is currently scheduled for publication in autumn 2011. He's uh, just putting the final chapters together and still has a few more photographs to take but hopefully we'll see it before Christmas Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, England For more details about the Society and to find out how we can help you get more out of your dowsing please see our website at britishdowsers.org Let us know about your own dowsing research projects. Send an email to podcast at britishdowsers.org and you can also post messages on our forum and you can even find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishdowsers. Thanks for listening. Many thanks as always to Hilary Brooks and Ian Pegler for all the music and be sure to join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. Dowsing.